Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. All right, so up next we have uh, the... Beatles for Sale album, which sometimes is called For Sale, which was released on December 4th, 1964. And um, full disclosure, this is my favorite of the like early, what you might call immature Beatles albums. And it is also one of the, perhaps the least critically well-regarded. So I guess a little bit of explanation is in order. It's considered pretty mediocre to follow up to the Hard, Hard Day's Night. And some people consider it their worst album or second worst album. But it is their fourth album in 21 months. Now, they were half-hour-long albums. They weren't hour-long albums like maybe we were doing in the 90s and, and aughts. But they were still four albums in 21 months, not even two years. I think it's kind of a little weird that people got frustrated by it. People criticize it in part because the covers came back on this album. The covers were all gone on Hard Day's Night, and they came back. And in particular, the covers here, some of them are not... well. One of them in particular, which we'll get to, is considered one of the worst Beatles songs of all time. Now, I don't particularly like that recording, but I like a lot of the rest of it. I like a lot of the original songs, most of them. And this is when the Beatles started to actually get weird, like actually weird for the first time in their history. And I think that's one of the reasons this album really appeals to me is because like before they'd like tinkered and they, you know, they had weird chord progressions and stuff. But as we were talking about earlier, it was subtle. And this is when they started to get like, kind of strange relative to pop music at the time of course it's nothing compared to how strange they would get later but i think one of the reasons beatles for sale is appealing to me is because it gets kind of wacky so to start things off we have perhaps the most second most famous song for this album no more play this happened once before when i came to your door no reply they said it wasn't you Okay, that is a song that's grooving out vaguely about stalking. It is probably John Lennon's best song to date, at least in my opinion. There is some disagreement about whether Paul McCartney uh, helped co-write some of the lyrics or the music. They didn't necessarily, the Beatles actually didn't necessarily agree with that because I Feel Fine, the song we um, finished off with right before this, with the feedback in it, uh, was chosen as the lead single. But this is the most clear evidence of the creeping Bob Dylan influence on Jen, John Lennon. And uh, his songs were getting more autobiographical and they were getting darker, though. I mean, and this album is notable for being, relatively speaking, considerably darker than previous Beatles albums. But this is the first time John Lennon actually tried to tell a story in a song, which feels like a pretty important landmark for him as a songwriter and for the Beatles band, because they weren't really doing that before. They were doing love songs basically mm-hmm. exclusively. And I would say, honestly, I think it might be the best song they'd produced to date. It is obviously you can tell I'm a fan. It is also so, notable for how folky it is in comparison to everything they produced previously. You were going to say something. How common would, especially in the realm of pop music, how common would be a story song at this point in time versus a, just a love song? Well, it was huge in country and it was huge in folk. But the thing about those things were that they were not pop. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, there might have been the odd story song. Like there was um, 
I don't know when the Teenage Tragedy song started, for example, you know, like Leader yeah. of the Pack and stuff like that. Leader of the Pack is dated to 1965. So this is right. This is before Leader yeah. of the Pack. Okay. And now I don't know how many previous Teenage Tragedy song, songs there were before Leader of the Pack, but nothing comes to mind. Yeah. But yeah, it was relatively rare, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not just the storiness. It's also the, the folkiness, you know, the fact that it starts out predominant acoustic guitar and it's just like very clearly you know even though lennon never with one notable exception lennon really never wrote like dylan he was very clearly being influenced by these other genres where they told stories and and in addition as a segue he was being influenced by just this idea of like confessing what you feel like which is not what bob dylan was doing but which were other some other folk singers were doing and so the next track is called i'm a loser i'm a loser i'm a loser and i'm not what i yeah, a confessional song and the far and away the most downbeat thing the beatles had yet recorded it is a little more countryish musically though some people say it was influential on folk rock maybe it does feature a harmonica solo the last a harmonical solo on a Beatles song. And it's it's also notable for its hybrid. The break actually is a part of a verse and part of the chorus, which was a typical Beatles trick of the time. But the biggest notable thing is the lyrics, which are about how John Lennon hates himself. And it's notable, like Brian Wilson wrote songs like this too, but I don't know exactly when the first one he wrote was, where he was really clearly, obviously like, I, I suck. But this was a thing that just didn't happen in pop music at the time. And though I personally prefer No Reply as a song, I think I'm a Loser is also a landmark. And one of the reasons I like this album so much is it's got these songs on it that feel more contemporary, more modern, honestly, compared to the stuff on A Hard Day's Night. People, critics and fans tend to like A Hard Day's Night a lot more, but this album feels much more modern to me than A Hard Day's Night does, partly because of these songs that start off the record. So I, I call the opening three songs of this album a trilogy of depression because the last one is Babies in Black, a song that uh, John Lennon wrote with Paul McCartney, which is actually in 6-8, which uh, their first successful attempt at performing a song outside of conventional 4-4. It also is one of the first instances on the record of George Harrison's really weird guitar solos on this record. We're going to quote Alan Pollock about it. For a guy who made such a specialty of the well-practiced kind of solo that is the, the most understated, delicate paraphrase of the tune, George really lets go here with a solo where only obvious connection to the original refrain melody is to be found in the lilting cadence of its rhythmic pattern. Otherwise, in place of the predominantly stepwise melodic arch performed by the singers, we get a guitar part that is not only full of long jumps, but is also peppered through with bent notes and free dissonance against the underlying chords. All in all, a worthy contrast to the surrounding sections. Uh, I don't think Harrison is particularly appreciated for some of the wacky shit he did around this point in his career. He would very quickly be eclipsed by more guys who become more famous as guitar players and more influential very shortly. Um, you know, Eric Clapton was still playing the blues at this point, completely straight up, but very soon would be experimenting with effects and stuff. But there are some weird guitar solos on this record. They're very brief. But there are some really weird ones and Babies in Black, which is a song about, you know, basically not getting the woman you want, has a very 
wacky one along with there's there's a few others on this record so the first three songs were all john lennon songs and they were all sort of unhappy and then the, the fourth song is a folk song straight up folk song uh, by paul mccartney which again is kind of downbeat but significantly uh more upbeat it feels like than the first three songs And it's it's actually possibly one of the most famous songs in the album. It certainly used to be played a fair amount on radio, though not as much as No Reply or Eight Days a Week, which we will get to. But uh, it is is notable because it is it's full on folk, unlike the first three songs. But it is, of course, uh, not written as an actual folk song in terms of the chord changes because they didn't really stick to genre like that. And honestly, the chord changes apparently have a lot more common in with rock music. And then there's Eight Days of the Week. And I don't know what to say about Eight Days of the Week. It's the band hated it, apparently. It was released in the US as a single, even though it wasn't supposed to be a single in the UK, and it became a massive hit. It's the first song I ever learned to play on guitar. I can't play guitar anymore, but when I briefly learned how to play guitar, I knew how to play Eight Days a Week. I could probably still play it if I if someone put a gun to my head and said play a song of guitar. I could probably play it this week. It is notable because it is a Beatles song that for the first time ever had an unrelated musical intro in coda. They really had not done anything like that before. It is really simple, both of them, so simple that I can play it on guitar. An example of the growing sophistication in their composition in that they were starting to think about weird stuff like putting intros and codas into the song that really didn't fit with the rest of it but it's also kind of inane like the lyrically it is possibly it's one of the weaker originals on the album and it's far more interesting musically than it is lyrically it's it's sort of a goofy joke i guess in some ways but i don't think it's very funny uh, i don't think it's dated very well and like it really does sort of feel like lyrically going through the motions whereas musically it, it's certainly more adventurous than a lot of the stuff they've been putting out on their previous records but given that it's the most famous song from the album, I think that's one reason why people probably like shun this album a little bit is because it's like that they're like, that's a dumb song. It is a dumb song. I agree. But it, for some reason, it was the biggest hit um, that actually came from the album. So after that, we have Every Little Thing, uh, which is one of only two like positive songs they, they wrote. It's notable because on it, uh, Star plays the uh, Ringo Star plays the timpani, which is a big orchestral drum. And, uh, it's uh, not something that they had used before and is the arguably the weirdest thing they'd used so that's, far. That's super weird. Like my yeah. mother was a um, percussionist and she loved playing the timpani. Yeah. But like I've had, I'm struggling right now, even with all the weird stuff that I've, that I know the Beatles have rolled into their music. I'm struggling with the idea of the timpani in their music. Yeah. Well, we can help you with that. If you just bear with me one second. Mm -hmm. When I'm walking beside her, people tell me I'm lucky. Yes, I know I'm a lucky guy. I remember the first time I was lonely without her. Can't stop thinking about her now. Every little thing she does. Do you hear it? The end there? 
Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> they were, That's and neat. Later on, there's a, a bizarre guitar solo that is just basically mm-hmm. chords. And I'm not sure who played that one, but um, it is also just like sort of like being weird for, I guess, because they felt like it. I actually, uh, it, it's, I, I said at the beginning um, that uh, you can usually tell uh, the, the first episode that you can usually tell who wrote the the song between Lennon McCartney by whose voice is more prominent. But this is a weird one because John Lennon's voice is absolutely further forward in the mix, but Paul McCartney has taken credit for it and during John Lennon's life, and um, John Lennon never contradicted him, which is. Usually, if someone was trying to take credit for something that Lennon thought he he should have credit for, he would he would uh, fight back and in the press. So um, it's it's just that's a that's a really unimportant thing, but it is interesting because usually the composer's voice is the one that's most dominant in the song, and this is one of a very few examples in their history where it is probably the opposite of that. Uh, the next track is a song called I Don't Want to Spoil the Pir- uh, Party, which is another depressing John Lennon song. And I honestly is one of the highlights again for me. It's a story song again, like No Reply. And uh, in this case, John Lennon is the butt of an unfortunate uh, circumstance. And it's it's yet another one of these songs where it's like basically the like life is like conspiring against him and i think one of the reasons this album really uh you know appeals to me is because of the number of these songs is sort of just you know it was sort of like it might have been like underlying his lyrics previously but suddenly on this album there's all these songs about like how terrible he is it's also a once again uh folk instrumentation paired with a pop rock structure uh, the next track is what you're doing which begins with a, a drum introduction, which was rare for them. In fact, I think it was the first time they did it. And there's also a, another weird guitar solo this time. Someone, I believe it's George Martin, but it might be Paul McCartney. It's just like rumbling around on the piano and George Harrison is just like noodling on the guitar and it really doesn't fit with the song. It's just, it's a further uh, like indication that they were just getting, they were sort of like pushing against the boundaries of what was established as pop rock at this point, which they had a lot to do with establishing. And this this particular uh, guitar solo, I'm a big fan of because it actually it starts with chords, it ends with arpeggios, and it's just instead of the melodic line, much like talking about uh, the other solo that I quoted Pollock on. Uh, he was really starting to play around with convention. It is apparently also hugely influential on the birds. I don't know how true that is. So now we come to the, the reason why the critics didn't like this record or, or think it's one of their worst albums, and that is the covers. There are a bunch of them, and they basically, the Beatles have admitted that they included covers because they were exhausted and they couldn't write any new material. And given that they had this was their fourth album in 21 months, that's not really that crazy. Though I would say that with the notable exception of one of those covers, it's not like they're bad. It's just that there's a lot of them and they had just convinced the world that they wouldn't do any more covers and so uh, by putting out an album of all original material. And so people, you know, I guess their standards got higher. So the first one is rock and roll music. Their second 
Chuck Berry cover, arguably their best. It's straight ahead. It's pretty, it's pretty similar to the original. It does feature John Lennon on the piano performing pretty well, which showing their growing ability to play other instruments. Honestly, I think the Beatles version of rock and roll music is as famous as Chuck Berry's at this point. I'm not sure that's fair. That is Mr. Moonlight and is reputed by many to be the worst Beatles song of all time. I'm not sure that's true. I think there's some psychedelic tracks that would give it a run for its money, but there are many people who hate it. And I think also if you go into the anthology uh, set, you'll also find some, uh, some songs that probably like less than that. It is notably extremely different from everything else on this album. It is... You know, there's some non-rock percussion. Paul McCartney is playing the organ and has an organ solo. It's the first time, and it's super clear that he has not yet mastered uh, the organ. Um, it's super campy. Uh, it's I haven't heard the original in a long time, but it's way more over the top than the original, which I guess was a deliberate artistic decision. I don't know. But I think it comes from the point of, like I mentioned early in the series, that the Beatles were entertainers in addition to being musicians at the time. They had comedy skits when they perform when they went on TV. They had comedy numbers. Ringo was always singing comedy numbers. So I think this comes from a place of like they they still hadn't completely moved beyond that. There's a collection of um, Beatles live performances called Live at the BBC from, from the early 60s. And there's a lot of them sort of doing sort of campy stuff and goofy stuff and of course they made they put out two comedy films too and i think that fits in with this i'm not trying to say it's good but like i understand why it's here in a way but it is it is notorious and i certainly have nothing to say in its defense except that it at least shows a little bit of range but i mean i think you know there's a reason people don't like it the next cover is a medley of uh mike lever and jerry stoller's kansas city with the little richard songs hey 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 which is actually a thing that Little Richard used to do. So it's, it's lacking in originality a little bit because uh, it, like they are actually, usually they fool around with their covers, but in this case, they just did what Little Richard did. And then the next cover is the first, and I think only Buddy Holly cover they ever did, Words of Love. John Lennon was obsessed with Buddy Holly in the early days of their recording existence, but this is the only time they did it. And um, it's notable, again, like, both rock and roll music and the Kansas City hey 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 uh, medley that they didn't really change that much and I can think that's another reason why people didn't really like the album is the covers were maybe a little less interesting versions of like they didn't do as much to change them around Honey Don't uh, is a Carl Perkins song which uh, was Ringo Starr's lead vocal on the record it's a country tune which is what Ringo Starr was sort of singing at the time it's pretty straightforward as well. And then there's another Carl Perkins song, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, which is a little more different than the original. It has a false ending that they added, and I don't, I don't think it's in the original. And George Harrison sings it because he, had, he was not, again, not allowed to contribute a song to this one. I think generally the album's very clearly a mixed bag, but to me, the originals really, really stand out. They feel like a, at times, it, both in terms of how the quality of the songs, with the exception of Eight Days a Week and 
the arrangements they feel and the like risks they were starting to take. It feels like a quantum leap to me from a hard day's night. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the covers, but the lyrics were getting more subtle, more complicated, more personal, more adventurous. And then musically, they were getting way more adventurous. They've got the timpani, they've got other sorts of weird percussion. One of them's performing an organ solo. There's all sorts of weird guitar, weird for 1964 guitar solos, still 1964. And, um, you know, the one thing I think you can say is these innovations were no longer subtle, which they had been in the past. And maybe that came from the exhaustion and how tired they were. I mean, and you can't expect to knock it out of the park on your first real stretch of your legs. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've always been very, from the moment I heard this album, I was fond of it. To me, it sounds like it was recorded in a different year than A Hard Day's Night, even though they were released like six months apart. Um, that's, that's, and that's super wild. Yeah, yeah. And To go from Hard Day's Night to that is, yeah, that's and, something. And yeah, and, and no one really saw that at the time, which I find fascinating. So I, uh, I'm a fan. It is, like I said, my favorite Beatles album before they got like actually really interesting and good. Anyway, so uh, yeah, that's Beatles for Sale, their last album of 1964. And I, for me, possibly their first modern Beatles album. So a few months later, in April 1965, they released A Ticket to Ride. So that is very folk rocky. Um, it's another John Lennon song with a melancholy bent. You know, uh, his girlfriend's going away. It is uh, interesting in terms of Beatles trivia because it is the first known time that Paul McCartney played a lead guitar part on a song. He he do it at the very. It's in the coda, and it would become a thing he would do all the time as he became more and more of a perfectionist. It was far and away the loudest Beatles song to date. John Lennon is infamous. In what he said, he claimed that with this song, uh, he invented heavy metal, which is one of the most laughable things I think anyone, a Beatle, has ever said about anything. He wasn't, of course, making this ref- he wasn't making this uh, claim in reference to Metallica. He was making it in reference to uh, Led Zeppelin. But still, the point was that the record was loud. I don't think it's as loud as he thought it was, but it's all notable that the Kinks had already released. Um, you really got me, which invented like introduced it didn't invent the power chord, but it introduced the power chord. And uh, I think they had also released all day and all the night. Also, the Who had put out songs, and I think the Yardbirds had put out songs. So the idea that it was the loudest pop song yet is preposterous. John Lennon had a habit of saying silly things in public, like claiming he was more popular than Jesus, which got him in a lot of trouble. And anyway, I just wanted to mention that because that is a thing that he said about this about that song I just played. However. It was a massive hit, uh, one of the biggest to date. And notably, at the end of the song, they actually play it in double time uh, while Paul McCartney is playing his solo, which was, of course, unusual. The B-side, Yes It Is, is also a pretty great song and makes uh, me believe that this was their strongest single to date. If you They rewrote an earlier song. This boy, 
And uh, it's basically, in many ways, it's just a better version of this boy. It's a more elaborate arrangement. It, it is, uh, I don't know, it's just, it works better. And it's also notable, it, um, you know, my obsession with guitar technique, it's notable for the use of a primitive effects pedal, where I don't even know if it was a pedal yet, a uh, primitive effect on the guitar, possibly the first time ever a volume uh, effect was used on a guitar on record. Uh, George Harrison essentially just using some kind of device, whether it was a pedal or something else, to modulate the volume on his guitar without actually strumming anything. So that's weird. And that wouldn't be a straight ahead pedal to do that. Yeah. I, I wonder I, if it, I, I it would have been a predecessor to a Wawa. Maybe. I mean, it, it is. A, you, would, you would accomplish that probably fairly simply with variable resistor. Because that, that's essentially all, all a slider is, is it just varies the resistance on the circuit. Uh, like a wah-wah pedal is a little bit more complicated than that because it does things to the sound. But I'm wondering if you just would have had a volume pedal where it was yep. just, yeah. Yep. And I, I think now whether that would have been done via pedal or done in post, would it have to have been done in pedal? Because how would you have... Yeah, it's not done in post. You can, I'm yeah. pretty sure you can hear. It, it's it literally like, to... it's like no one's strumming. Basically, he's holding down a chord and yeah. then something else is causing the electric guitar to make the noise other than his fingers. Anyway, the thing yeah. is, the reason why I said maybe not a pedal is because effects pedals didn't like literally did not exist yet in 1965. They were invented no. right around this time. Like the wah-wah was invented in 66, I think, for example. And so I don't know if whoever their engineer created a pedal for him for this. I just know that the, the effect is like a volume pedal that would come later. And it's the first time I'm aware of it being on a song. And the interesting thing, of course, is that it is on a song that is, the focus is entirely on the Beatles' harmonies and not on this guitar thing. It's just something they did. It was, once again, a subtle innovation. So a couple months later, they released their next single, one of the more famous songs. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. And this, of course, became the title track to their next album and their next movie. It was also backed with a song called I'm Down. I think it's safe to say it's yet another indication that John Lennon was growing as a songwriter. It might be the first ever It's Hard to Be Famous song by a pop rock band. I don't know, Um, though I'm not sure that's a thing they want to be proud of. But anyway, it came out 10 days before the movie. But of course, the first movie was much more happy, just goofy. Uh, and I mean, I, I help is probably goofy too, but like this, the, at least the lead s- single is is not a happy song. The Birds had been making folk rock since Aprilish, and Dylan had gone electric in March. But the Beatles were still very much leading the way here in terms of rock songs that had lyrics that sort of possibly belonged in folk songs. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, the Birds, for example, were doing electric covers of Bob Dylan at this point. So this is a little closer, I guess, in spirit to Bob Dylan. But again, Bob Dylan was, of course, lyrically on another planet than John Lennon. But that's obvious. The uh, the B-side, I'm Down, is another uh, Little Richard homage by Paul McCartney. I think it's one of his best performances as a vocalist from this part of their career. It's also maybe one of the most raucous songs they recorded in their entire career, maybe up through 1968 anyway. And very clearly, completely different than Help, which is a folk rock song. This is just pure rock and roll. It's almost regressive in 
its style compared to Help because it sounds like it's from another era, but very loud for them. Before I get to the Help album, I wanted to mention that there is a a sort of lost track here called Bad Boy. It's on the Past Masters Volume 1 album, which collects their singles. It was a US-only Larry Williams cover that they recorded during the Help sessions, and it came out on the the American album Beatles 6. It actually was a bastardized US album, but uh, I mean, there's so many of them. Actually, it was released on a redundant compilation in the UK, and so no one heard it. It's really um, not that notable. It's a Larry Williams cover. All their Larry Williams covers were loud rock and roll songs. This is a loud rock and roll song, and it's a little more stripped down than the original, but otherwise it's pretty straightforward. And it's really not notable, but I'm a completist, and so I wanted to mention it before we get to their album, Help which was released in August 1965, so a few weeks after the movie came out and was their most elaborate recording to date, to put it mildly. In fact, it is in, in, my, in my book, it is, I believe, the first time I credit the musicians separately from track to track because of how much more stuff they were doing than uh, on previous records. So once again... Help is mostly original songs. There are only two covers this time out of the uh, 14 tracks. And it also includes the first standard the Beatles ever wrote, arguably. Um, Well, actually, not arguably. It it, it did become a standard. It's also the first Beatles album where instead of sending their their additional material to other artists to have them record it, they actually just didn't include all the material they had. The most noble song here is a song called Wait that was released on Rubber Soul in a new version. And uh, there were some other songs that were written for the movie and never released. So even though they'd sort of worn themselves out with For Sale, they were actually back to their uh, ridiculously prolific selves by this record, even though there are two uh, covers. And um, yeah, so they once again had too much material, which probably helps make this album feel a little more consistent musically than For Sale, though of course I like For Sale more. So it opens with a song called The Night Before, which is another song that features Paul McCartney playing lead guitar, though Harrison is well. There is um, an early electric piano called The Pianette, played by John Lennon. It is a Paul McCartney song, was uh, apparently just tossed off, but is actually quite quite a strong song for being tossed off and also is a fairly elaborate arrangement for them. And that brings us to the next track, which is infamous in some ways. It is you got to hide your you've got to hide your love away, which is the most obvious Dylan ever, or Lennon ever went to imitating Bob Dylan, including vocally, it's a little bit like a a, a parody. And, or tribute, I'm not sure which. It depends on how charitable you're being. It is a much more folky song than most of the stuff they've been doing, but John Lennon is really trying to sound, sound like Bob Dylan on it, and it, it kind of makes it sound a little not great uh, in retrospect. And honestly, some people have really pointed to this song as like a, his as John Lennon's growth, but I, I think there's like, if you look at No Reply, you look at I'm a Loser, you look at Help, they're all better songs. It is notable for being the first time the Beatles used session musicians, aside from the drummer who briefly replaced Ringo Starr on their first single, on an album or on a recording, there are flutes on this song. And that would become 
much more common as we would go into the future. So I Need You is another track like Yes It Is from the uh, Ticket to Ride single, which has another volume effect on it. And I have it written as a volume pedal, but I, I don't actually know if it was a pedal or not. You don't realize how much I need you. And so it is it gets it even though it's it's a not great song by George Harrison, it does get a lot of attention sometimes because again there's there's this weird effect on his guitar which makes it stand out. It is also the first time George Harrison contributed a song since with the Beatles. And he it's the beginning of his career as their really his career as their third songwriter, um, though it would always be a struggle uh to get his material onto their albums. The next track is Another Girl, which is another upbeat Paul McCartney song. Paul McCartney's contributing a lot more all of a sudden. Uh, it features uh, another guitar solo by uh, Paul McCartney, again doubled on top of Harrison's, which is a thing that they were doing a lot of at this point. It's kind of not a great song as a song, but at least it shows off Paul McCartney's abilities uh, as a like guy who could apparently play anything he wanted to. You're Gonna Lose That Girl is one of the rare songs, which was very clearly a collaboration between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Uh, they were already very much writing their own songs most of the time. It does sound a little bit like an older song. They, uh, you know, it, it belongs in their past a little bit, but it was actually written around the spring of 1965. It does feature some of their weird arrangement tricks. The opening section, like of the verse, I think is used to shorten the bridge or something. It's it, there's some some weird things that don't quite make sense musically and um it is actually apparently an actual co-write between the two of them which was not really happening anymore the next track is a john lennon track called it's only love uh he apparently hated it but it's notable because they ran george harrison's guitar through the speaker of a hammond organ uh giving it a shimmering quality uh a trick that was later employed by many many people including eric clapton and it became one of the signature sounds of psychedelic rock music, despite the fact it was recorded in a folk rock song. I get high when I see you go by. The Beatles were constantly searching for weird things to do. And this is the second weird guitar effect on this record, aside from just the overdubbing that was going on where they were actually like helping to define the sound of the rest of the decade with these little things they were doing on, on throw, some of these tracks, which I guess are like no one's ever heard of in our, our kind of throwaway. George Harrison gets a second song somehow, You Like Me Too Much. It has a really weird intro. It has multiple pianos in the introduction. George Martin and Paul McCartney were playing two ends of the same piano, and then John Lennon's playing an electric piano all on the intro, which is just this wacky, wacky thing that they had never done before. I jokingly called it in my book a piano orchestra. I'm not sure that people had done that. It was a very out there thing to do. It doesn't sound that out there on record, but it's still wacky. I don't really know why they did it, but it is one of these things where they were once again just doing strange shit the song has a lot of chords in it, and they uh, it does not progress through the progression upwards. It goes all around. It is a little more sophisticated than the other George Harrison song. And it's kind of neat, actually. It's, I think it's one of the better things here. 
Tell Me What You See is another Paul McCartney song, again, showing that he was being much more prolific uh, than he had been the last two records. And it is arguably one of his more mature songs at this point. It also uh, features a break featuring Paul McCartney on electric piano, which was a thing they had not really done much of before. There's a bunch of percussion overdubs, possibly the most they'd ever used on a song. It has a bit of Aladdin feel, which is like they'd already, they had that in a bunch of songs ever since with the Beatles, but in this particular case, it's stronger. And, uh, and I think this is growing evidence that Paul McCartney was keeping pace a little bit with John Lennon in terms of growing as a songwriter, but nothing compared to the next two tracks. Uh, the first of which is I've Just Seen a Face. Arguably, I think the second best song Paul McCartney had written up to this point. It has no bass in it, which is neat, and it's super, super country. It features an extended intro like Eight Days a Week did, but the whole song is much, much better than Eight Days a Week. It's notable that Ringo Starr plays the drums, but he uses brushes instead of a drumsticks, which was much more of a jazz thing. Um, there's some maracas, and it's just, uh, it's honestly, it's one of the best things here. It's actually become done a lot more airplay over the years, and I, there was a cover of it by uh, someone in the 90s. I feel like, I don't know, a, a prominent woman singer covered it. I can't remember who in the 90s, and it got a little bit of uh, attention again. But then uh, there's the other one, which is the obvious candidate for the best song Paul McCartney had written to date yesterday. The first time the Beatles had written a song that became a standard pretty much instantly, Secondhand Songs Chronicle catalog covers on the internet claims there's 990 covers on record plus 200 online. Last time I checked, that was a while ago, so it's probably higher. I have heard other people claim 1,600 versions, which seems just preposterous. It is the second song on the album to feature session musicians. This time it's a string quartet arranged by George Martin, though apparently Paul McCartney had a hand in it. At least he couldn't write music, but at least in terms of humming it or something, it was released as a single in the US, not in the UK. The reason it wasn't released as a single in the UK is because the Beatles, the other Beatles didn't play on it and they weren't super happy about it which is the first time of many, many times this would happen throughout the rest of their career. I don't, I don't know what to say about it. It is, it's so ubiquitous, and I've heard it so many times that I'm, I'm not really a fan, but it is one of their most famous songs, and it literally, the moment it came out, it started getting covered like immediately, and it is like the classical pop standard. By that definition, it is a standard. So then immediately after, just to like fuck with us, apparently, they put in a country cover called Act Naturally, which is, uh, they, they, had written, they had written one for Ringo Starr, If You've Got Trouble, but that is a contender for one of the worst songs they ever wrote. So instead they put Act Naturally, and uh, it's super, super country. It has very little to do with yesterday. It is also arguably far less pretentious. It's the last cover they recorded, not released for the next four years, because they recorded it after the next cover. And it's, it's pretty similar to the original, but it's notable. The sequencing is fascinating to me because uh, they, oh, wait, I'm wrong about the sequencing. That was earlier in the album, actually. It's Dizzy Miss Lizzie that comes after yesterday. My apologies. Anyway, the fact is they, they, they had yesterday and then they put on a cover right afterwards. Dizzy Miss Lizzie, a traditional Larry Williams rock and roll song, 
something they've done a bunch of and they would never they it would be four years before they put another cover on an album So you can say this record is also transitional by like Beatles for Sale. There's some covers. There's there's that one song that sort of sounds like their early era, but they're also um, you could say the innovations are a little more subtle, like the the triple piano intro and stuff. They're they're less glaringly weird, which for me makes it less appealing, but is also like a sign of their growing sophistication. It's got more. Of recording sophistication than anything they put out so far, certainly with the addition, not just the overdubs, but also the session musicians. And of course, it contains their most famous, well, what would become their most famous song to date, even though it was actually not released as a single in the UK. And it is, you know, it's, it's also their last folk rock record because they would soon move on to a broader palette with their next album. And so last album with, co- well, last album with covers for four years. Almost the last album with covers, and also arguably the last folk rock record. As much as I prefer Beatles for Sale, I think a lot of people would say this is this was their most sophisticated album to date. 